It's time for Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games Podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 192. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. Jeff, help, I'm dying. <laughs> Are you dying of heat? Uh, it is really hot. It's 100 degrees. Yeah, it's like 100 That's degrees. That's Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit, folks. SoCal. It is a desert. Who knew? <laughs> I think 100 degrees Celsius, um, we would be dead. Yeah, that, bad, how that probably. works. No, uh, the wife went to Ireland for work, which is pretty cool. Ireland? Yeah, crazy, right? Really? Like, and wow. The, the, the country? Yes. <laughs> no, the, uh, the moon. Wow. Circling Jupiter. Uh, and she brought back the our plague. Ireland plague. <laughs> that, so was, that was nice of her. Yeah. She brought you home a gift. <laughs> that happens. Yeah, I've had um, plagues brought home from multiple countries. I once had uh, Mexico, Mexican plague. That was great. That was one that hit me from like um, midnight till noon. Have you been to Mexico? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought this is just Andrea bringing it back for you. No, a... she did. That, that was a separate. She's been to Mexico many times. I see. Yeah. Man. Anyway. It sucks to get sick when you don't even leave the house. <laughs> right? Like, I, I did everything right. I washed my hands. I'm careful. Yeah. <laughs> I never leave the house. No. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just get that part. She brings back gifts and plagues. But well, it's okay. What can you do? What can you do? Uh, so anyways, apologies if I'm uh, sounding terrible and a little loopy because I, I probably am. You got the sniffles like Trump in the <clears> debate <throat> last night. Ooh. Let's go right into the politics, yeah? Yeah. Um, real quick, we have Warm Waffles, new patron. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Warm Thanks Waffles. Thanks for being here. Uh, we are going to cover questions uh, from Andre. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, via email. And we also have uh, Dan Nagel on the forum. Hopefully, we'll have time to get to all that stuff. But as you said, not to completely kill the segue, uh, the first question is political. Ooh. Political, which is you know the timing of this question is interesting because of yeah one all the political stuff going on in the U.S. and two the Oculus founder Palmer Lucky uh, made some waves in the news lately about his support of some Donald Trump kind of political action groups. What's his name? Palmer Lucky. It's an amazing name. It sounds like a restaurant. Yeah, it is kind of weird, right? But yeah. Palmer Lucky's Bistro or something. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'd go there. They probably have excellent club sandwiches. Yeah, I like Bistro. Just guessing. Gastropub. That's the new thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I think normally we might, because, uh, you know, astute Lost Cast listeners know that this is not a very political show. We don't normally talk about that stuff. I'm sure it's trickled in now and a, now and then in a tangent or something, but yeah. it's not a very political show. We don't really wear politics in our sleeves normally, but it is very timely. I was going to say, I, I think that, you know, we're not going to be talking about our own political views that much, like necessarily. We're going to be talking about how political views kind of uh, intersect with, you know, doing game dev stuff. Like for one, right. in the example of Oculus and, and like how you wish a game dev should should approach that perhaps. Sure. Yeah. More the, the managing of politics and whatnot. So I guess like let's just jump right in. And uh, the setup... I think for this, at least in the context of Oculus, is that um, <clears throat> Palmer Lucky, uh, it was discovered somehow that he has been donating money and sort of been involved to some degree, I don't know exactly how much, with a group um, that is trying to uh, further the Trump agenda, so to speak, 
uh, via posting and memes, <laughs> right? So, so through, through the power of internet trolling, uh, they are trying to, you know, they create like anti-Hillary memes or they post on something about something. Yeah, I don't know. Who, who knows exactly how that works? But, um, you know, the, the long and short of it is, is that here's a guy who is in a very visible spot in a game development company uh, with views that are sort of, uh, you know, not aligned with probably the majority of people in that space. You know, like a lot of people in creative work tend, you know, not all the time, tend to be liberal leaning, uh, if nothing else. Um, and I think that you saw the same thing several years ago with the now no longer CEO or CTO Mozilla, Brendan Eich, uh, also the creator of JavaScript. Yeah. Um, he had donated some money to, um, I think one of the anti marriage equality things in California. Yeah. Um, and so he got a lot of flack for that. And then, you know, he was basically forced to resign more or less from Mozilla because of, because of that. And, um, you know, people had varying reactions, you know, some people say, well, you know, we don't want to support Mozilla and Mozilla, especially because Mozilla is a for-profit or a not-for-profit company. Sorry. Um, mm -hmm. you know, people felt like it was a little bit more community driven, um, and, and a yeah. little bit like held to a different standard perhaps than maybe. Um, a for-profit company, which, you know, who knows? Um, but, you know, in the end, like Mo Mozilla basically bowed to that pressure, right? Or, or he voluntarily bowed to that pressure and removed himself um, because, you know, at that point, the story was all about him and not about the product anymore, which for any company, that's kind of a bad spot to be. And I think that Oculus is in a very similar spot, right? Like that's not really the kind of attention Oculus wants. And you saw a whole bunch of developers um and, and people kind of rallying against this and saying you know we're not gonna release our games for oculus a, a few high profile people and uh and who knows exactly like how much traction an oculus boycott would actually have but i think it does bring up an interesting point about how should you as a game developer uh, or someone in a high profile gaming company like tackle your own political <laughs> actions um, when it has like this big effect on, you know, your company and, and potentially your games and stuff like that. Yeah. So the specific question is, uh, in your opinion, is it better for indie developers to hide their own political views from a public, from the public and never speak about controversial and divisive subjects like religion feminism, et cetera? Uh, or is it better to be completely open about your views? Um, even though they might not be popular and might turn away, you know, potential players. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, we have kind of spoken with our action by not really wearing our politics on our sleeve. But I, th I think that's just one way to go. I think if you are inherently political, if it matters to you and you kind of want to work that stuff into your games, I think go for it. If that's one of your passions, that's kind of what indie development is all about is the things that interest you, you know, like making content about those and being very vocal about it. So if that's one of your passions, I would recommend leaning into it. And we've seen some successful things. I mean, we talk about The Binding of Isaac a lot. And honestly, one of the biggest things about that game is it's, you know, kind of it's dialogue about religion. Right. right? And uh, that, you know, went over very well. And I think that I would like to say, you know, the, the question of whether or not you should put your political views into a game. Uh, I think that honestly and, and sort of sadly, it really depends on which side of popularity you're on. Um, whether or not it's a good idea, right? Hmm. Um, you know, for example, I think that 
within the gaming community being an atheist or an agnostic or having a you know sort of negative view of religion is fairly common you know for that demographic yeah and so you know uh, or or growing up religious and becoming disenfranchised with it as you get older like that's a pretty common thing and um you know like that speaks to a large amount of people and and like you're not going to get a whole lot of pushback right because of that um if you made a game that was you know pushing your you know perhaps very conservative very republican very trumpian kind of views i don't know i think you get a lot more flack for that right because you know right or wrong you know i'm not trying to pass judgment on on any stance here but you have to think about how your actions are going to be viewed in light of your core demographic because you're selling a product to people right and yeah. if your political views are essentially opposite to a large segment of your uh, audience then that that might be a problem for you right yeah for sure um, I can't help but think of Papers, Please and the kind of political statement that it makes. And what I think is interesting about it is it doesn't, I mean, it does kind of say something through its gameplay, right? But it doesn't necessarily tell you straight up, you know, like, um, this is evil or anything. You have to figure it out through gameplay. And I think what's kind of more interesting than saying something overtly is just setting the stage for a conversation, right? Yeah. And I think that's something that Binary of Isaac did to a certain extent, too. Like, I don't think he necessarily came out and said religion is bad or anything, right? He more like gave you a scenario and it was sort of up to you to come to your own conclusions about what you thought of that. Perhaps I haven't played papers, please. So uh tiger hat on, but I assume that mm. that's very similar, right? Like it's, it's more about the conversation uh, instead of like kind of cram it down your throat. Like here's, here's the right, the one true way or something. Yeah. You kind of decide through the gameplay, whether you want to go ahead and do what the government wants you to do or whether, you know, if you want to sneak certain people through because uh, you like their story or whatnot. Yeah. So I think that as a game developer, it, it's really tough because it's not just now and it's it's always a thing with people, right? Is that you're going to get certain views that are popular or not popular. And honestly, if you're on the wrong side of history in certain cases, then uh, it might be better to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Honestly, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm true. It's like if I were a hardcore anti-immigrant, you know, Trump supporter or something, uh, I don't think that that would that would help our case. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if you were on Lost Cast every week talking about the same stuff Trump is, yeah, I, I do think we <laughs> we would hemorrhage listeners for sure. And I think that it, you know, it's also about the level of involvement too, right? There, there's, you know, there's that, like bringing politics into your game. And then there's things like with the Oculus guy where it's like, he didn't, he's not bringing politics into Oculus. He's just doing something on his own, uh, which is, a, I think, a completely different conversation, right? It's like, to what degree should we punish people who are in high profile spots who disagree with us politically? I think the answer is that in an ideal world, you know, people would be free to believe what they want and everyone would respect everyone else's opinion and blah, blah, blah. But I think that some people sometimes mistake freedom of speech with freedom from criticism. Mm, yeah. And I don't think that that's true, right? You know, a lot of people are saying like, oh, well, it's it's totally his right to to talk crap about Hillary and fund anti-Hillary memes and, and whatever else. And like, that is absolutely true. But what is also true, I think, is that um, the community as a whole has a right to say, 
hey, we don't like what this guy is doing, don't support him, right? And and it's up to every person to personally make that choice about whether or not they want to support, you know, Oculus and, and Palmer Lucky or whatever about, uh, you know, regarding his political views. But I don't think that either side should be shut down, right? It's not wrong for him to support who he wants. And it's not wrong for the community to say, hey, we don't like what you're doing. You know, we're going to make noise about it, essentially. Yeah. Did you watch The West Wing? Oh, absolutely. I watched it at least twice all the way through, I think. So I liked it a lot, and I'm not normally really that into politics, as I mentioned before. But for some reason, I think the writing is good. I like the characters and stuff. So that got me into Newsroom, because it's from Aaron Sorkin, the same writer. Have you mm-hmm. watched that one at all? I, I don't think I have, but Aaron Sorkin is really good, yeah. So the, the core premise of the show, of Newsroom, is that you've got Jeff Daniels, who's a news reporter. And he's kind of, uh, they explicitly say this in the show, he's kind of the Jay Leno of the news. And what they, what they mean by that, he's charismatic, everybody loves him, and he's really inoffensive. He's always in the middle. He doesn't pick on either side of anything too much, right? Like, he'll just kind of do joking jabs and stuff, but he's very likable. And so uh, this new producer comes in and wants to do, like, more of the hard talk, the, the push the boundaries, right? That, like, have these discussions, have a political view, try to make things better and whatnot. And so I think the... the I'm only on season one, so... Tiger Hat half on, I guess. Uh, but the first season definitely is all about like this conflict between I just want good ratings and I want to deliver the news well and maybe I could shape the world for the better. And I think that's an interesting stage for a show because you've got this constant um, you know, tide, right? Like a back and forth, like a tug of war about which is better. Do you want to be more popular or do you want to be more opinionated and stand for your beliefs? Yeah. And I think it's hard, especially you know, when we're talking about journal journalistic ethics you know i think that this gets into a whole different conversation about you know whether or not an objective viewpoint is even possible right i think that all people have inherent bias to one degree or another and you know sometimes you should just own it and embrace it right and um i think that sometimes you know your political views essentially they, they make up part of your personality right and um there's something to be said for kind of owning your personality and, you know, talking about the things that interest you because it will attract like-minded people to, you know, to whatever your medium happens to be, right? Um, I think that there's definitely a case to be made against being bland in the middle, right? You, yeah. can't, you can't really ever be all things to all people anyway, right? And so, yeah, uh, you know, just speaking from a, like, creative perspective right like how do you connect with your audiences and i think a lot of times the way that you connect with them is through shared experiences or shared ideology perhaps um and that's one reason i think binding of isaac did so well is because it kind of tapped into you know this very strong connection that a lot of people shared for sure yeah it was the last episode most recent episode we said something along the lines of like be who you are Right. Like unapologetically, like these are my viewpoints, just kind of do it. Yeah. Um, and previously we were talking about how like when there's not a strong like leader on a project, um, a project like a game, it might have, it might be in the middle of the road, right? It might not have as interesting, as interesting of a voice as it could, as, uh, as if it was just driven by one person that was like really opinionated and had these kind of like weird thoughts, right? When yeah. you design something by a bunch of different people, you might end up trying to satisfy everybody and you end up in the middle of the road and you have like a bland product. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, 
something that a lot of people and including us kind of fall into is I think that we tend to water down our opinion on things somewhat um, because of the fact that like we're afraid of alienating people. Um, And that's not, you know, I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing necessarily, but it's a thing. And I can sort of see how owning one side or the other of that spectrum could be beneficial, right? Like you might alienate some people, but you might create a much stronger connection with, with other people. And as we've sort of been learning over the past several years that for a studio like ours, you know, that's never going to be like, we're not making Madden, right? We're not making something that is like kind of mass appeal to tons and tons of people, right? We're making Are we like, going to cancel our Madden game? Yeah. <laughs> we, we've been working on that for so long. I was <laughs> <laughs> so looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, we might get sued by EA. I don't know. It'd be the first Madden game I'd ever played. And John Madden. He might come to our house personally. <laughs> He personally punches you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love it. Throws a turducken at me or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the same kind of idea as a niche, right? Yeah, exactly. Or niche or whatever you, however you, however you want to say it, it's finding a subset of people who might get really into what you're making. Right. And give them more reason to do that. I think it's tough uh, with certain things, though, because, you know, you know, I, I will come out and say that I'm a, a fairly liberal leaning person. What? You know? Oh, uh, no, unsubscribe. <laughs> unsubscribe, uninstall. I'm never listening again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that comes out now and again in, in our podcast talks. But uh, I think it's hard for me sometimes to think about people like Palmer Lucky and not feel a little, you know, unhappy about that situation, right? Like, I think that that would absolutely color my opinion of him and his company you know, right or wrong, good or bad, my own bias comes into play here, right? And, you know, in this situation specifically, you know, it's not just that he donated money, it's that he donated money and facilitated sort of what I consider to be like a borderline hate group in some ways, right? Like, <laughs> you're like, I hear you. you know, it's it's not just like, hey, I disagree with liberal agenda i'm going to donate money to trump for america or whatever yeah um but you know again like i can't really judge other people's methods too harshly right like he's not doing anything illegal you know he's trying to further his own personal agenda yeah um but you know the problem is is that you know i think that i think the polls currently in america would probably tell you that the race is closer than it actually is at least that's what the same part of me hopes it's so scary i think i believe that um it it seems a lot closer than it is because one uh well i I guess really there's only one thing which is that the media needs it to be a close horse race right yeah uh no one likes boring no one's gonna read news stories about yeah (laughs) hillary clinton is dominating donald trump in every measurable way if they're showing a huge lead people are gonna lose interest and they're gonna lose advertising dollars exactly right and so like Again, and, and that's a bias that the media has, right? Like, there's almost no way for them to be objective because they are incentivized to have close, dramatic uh, upsets to come from behind wins, things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it really terrifying, the, the prospect of a Trump presidency. It's, it's spooky to me. Yeah. Uh, so here I am expressing a political view. Um, I'll say for sure I am registered to vote and I am voting for Hillary Clinton. And as scared as I am, I feel a little better because Trump has uh, isolated women and 
African Americans and various other subsets of people. And it's like, you can't hate everyone. Like, people still need to vote for you, you know? His campaign is built on hate, and it's so horrible. I just, I can't see America embracing that (laughs) completely. The problem with his campaign, I think, kind of comes down to to two things, right? One is that he's appealing to a demographic that is shrinking as a percentage of the overall population. Yeah. Which is, you know, not to be dismissive of people's political opinions, but by and large, uh, low-educated white males, right? I mean, like, that's just kind of his base demographic. It's like, it's so insulting, especially when you're like, look, I'm not trying to insult anyone. That's just the facts. And <laughs> right? it, it, it's a, I understand that it's, it's probably, you know, people don't like being called uneducated. Or I'm not saying all Trump supporters are uneducated. I'm sure there's some very sure, sure. smart people that support Trump. But if you look at the core supporters and, and people that are likely Trump voters, I mean, that is a large block. The bulk of the demographic or whatnot. Right. Like yeah. Hillary Clinton and the liberals do much better with college educated white people even and then if you look at african americans uh hispanic americans women etc cetera, etc cetera, uh they do insanely better right like um and then the other problem with with donald trump's campaign right is that it is kind of built on this like uh like excluding people right like right. they want <laughs> like I feel like you're on the wrong side of history when you're talking about uh, like nationalism and isolationism and things like that, right? Like we are in a new era of the world uh, where globalization is a thing. We have instant communication, Twitter, Facebook, from all over the world. You can stream video games. You can stream news. Like it's, it's so much easier than ever to be connected to people all over the world. And you can ship products and like people are selling you things like there are people selling games on Steam from, you know, Bolivia and the Middle East and, and all kinds of places that you would never be able to purchase things from before. Um, and I think that people, like, you were never going to get back to that era where, you know, you work in an American factory making American cars and you have a 30 years there and you get a pension and then you retire, you know, like, some, at, at some point, some of those things are just done, right? Mm-hmm. And those jobs, no matter who is in power, are probably not going to come back, right? And, uh, and, and for Donald Trump to promise that he's going to bring manufacturing back to the United States uh, whilst offshoring his own company's manufacturing is, at the very least, disingenuous. Uh, and what I think, and I think is pretty much absolutely wrong and impossible anyway. Yeah. Yeah, politics gets, gets complicated, right? There's all these little interwoven things, and there's, there's politics is such a broad umbrella for all the things that make up uh, society, right? Yeah, yeah. When you said the um, being on the wrong side of history, I feel like you hit the nail on the head there, because uh, it just reminds me, like, not everyone has had the right to vote in this country, and you don't have to go that far back in history for that to be a problem. And like, what? That, that seems shocking today, right? Right. Clearly, people who were opposed to everyone having the right to vote were on the wrong side of history. We all agree to that now. And I see just a few decades down the road where there's going to be some issues that are up on <laughs> for debate today that everybody's going to be like, what? That was a thing? Like, certain people couldn't get married? Certain people couldn't vote? What is that? Right. What kind of country is this, right? Or, like, if you're Trump, like, certain religions can't enter the country? Like, come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah that's not, that's not going to stick. That 
you're you're not going to float that forever. That's just, the tide is turning as it has been for for decades, right? Yeah. And I think whether yeah. or not you're liberal or democrat, you know, you should at least look at the trend. Um, but that being said, I think that it's also beneficial to look at maybe like an even bigger zoom out, which is that uh historically like things are sort of like uh they come in cycles, right? You know. Yeah. Some t- like uh, and again, tiger hat on. I'm not a always. I'm not a big history major, but what? it's my under- major in history. <laughs> yeah, no, fired. Surprise, right? <laughs> um, my understanding that things like, uh, you know, same sex relationships between men and boys and stuff like that were a little bit more, um, acceptable, like in very olden times, like in Greece and things like that. Um, where are you wh- going with this? <laughs> well, I'm saying, I'm saying that now that is, you know, it, it it came back full circle where it was like almost illegal and prohibited, you know, like obviously based on age, but like, uh, you know, we we came to a spot where like you know probably hundreds of years ago or something, in, in a specific location, it was okay to be in a same sex relationship, and then it became not okay, and now it's becoming okay again. Hmm, Do you right. know what I mean? And so I guess what I'm saying is that it's sort of a devil's advocate argument that, you know, when I say on the wrong side of history, it kind of implies that there's this line, right? Where it's like same-sex uh, relationships are okay. And before that line, they were not okay. And after that line, they are okay. Right. When I think in reality, it might be something more like the ups and downs. Yeah. Like society kind of changes, right? And like, humans only have a very brief understanding of history within their own lifetime. Hmm. And when you go back far enough, hundreds, thousands of years, uh, you know, a lot of these ideas may have come and gone and risen in popularity and decreased in popularity. And then, you know, right now we're just in a time where those issues, whatever they happen to be, are kind of at whatever state they're at. Right. Which, so I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, and maybe... 500 years from now, when the United States falls as a superpower, maybe the country explodes, <laughs> turns into a bunch of small... No, I'm serious. Jeff Blair making predictions. Think about this. The Roman Empire lasted much, much longer than the United States has existed. Hmm. So I think it's foolhardy to think that the societies that we have now are the societies that are going to exist in 200, 500, 1,000 years. Yeah, that's fair. Right? I mean, who knows, right? Like, we could be conquered by some other faction of of the world, right? In in two hundred years or whatever. It's true. I think it would be the Canadians. I think so. They're they're gonna rise up. I think so. They're gonna come down and just take over, and uh, they're gonna just demolish us. That that warmongering Justin yeah. Trudeau. We're, we we didn't even stand a chance. <laughs> didn't see it coming. Yeah. It's like they they killed us with kindness. Well, they're so polite and they're so nice, but they're not telling us about all their nuclear weapons that they're building and hiding deep underground in their uh, James Bond-style lair. Yeah. Just watch. Just watch. Yeah. Anyways, so I don't know. It's, uh, the political thing is tough, right? I think that at the very least, it should be an important decision that you make, right? Yeah. And, and understand how your public persona affects, you know, your business, right? Yeah. Um, and it could just be, you know, it doesn't have to be political, right? It could just be, you know, like, uh, 
that dentist or whatever that went to Africa and paid a bunch of money to go shoot lions and he shot a lion he wasn't supposed to and the oh, inter- lion had a name and everything. Yeah, and then so you know people were outraged and like they just bombarded his Yelp page with negative reviews and stuff like that. Um, because we live in an era, because of all this globalization and stuff like that, like we live in an era where, you know, if someone listened to this podcast and they were like, Jeff is such a liberal commie, you know, I hate him. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to rally all of my perhaps tens of thousands of followers or whatever to yep. bombard his Steam page with one star oh, thumbs no. down reviews, right? Like that would, that would be a thing. And that happens, right? That happens to a lot yeah, of people. That's true. That's a thing. Although it tends to happen more, I think, with yeah, people that have like liberal leaning, ex- you know, not extreme views, but one end of the spectrum, I guess. For sure, yeah. See, that's that's my old thing. Is I'm <clears throat> I'm kind of in the middle of the road with with a lot of things, a lot of issues, and politics. Uh, like we have bored a lot of listeners for the last half an hour. Some <laughs> people just do not care, and I kind of put myself in that category normally, right? I mean, it's really difficult with uh america and the state it's in and with the debate just last night and i made sure to watch it so it's like hot on my mind for once right like it's the first time i've cared about politics in probably eight years <laughs> you know yeah um so that's my whole stance is uh I, I do think that if you are passionate about politics and you're making stuff anything at all the games or your writings or whatever like working in there you know if, if that appeals to you and you want to have some kind of a um an impact at all and you want to get your message across like go for it why not yeah I would uh, be interested to learn more about um, Klifsky's game, Democracy, that series. Mm. Because, I mean, I think that's a that's a kind of game where there's a lot of sort of like under-the-surface political opinions uh, kind of hardwired into the game, right? Mm-hmm. I imagine that the game, you know, it's a simulation of some kind, and so there are rules governing that simulation. And so you have to kind of like code in how certain policies affect the world, right? And so if you're a very liberal-leaning person, you could say that low corporate tax rate is bad, right? Right. Like, it increases inequality, it increases poverty, uh, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, you know, if you set your corporate tax rate too low, then, you know, your game simulation will kind of go to Interesting, yeah. There's got to be some kind of, even if unintentional, but like political fingerprints in the numbers of that game, right? Yeah. Like the stuff behind the scenes. There's got to be some kind of an, uh, a biased opinion just accidentally even worked in there. I wonder what it is. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I wonder, I'm sure that he probably tried, at least if I were making that game, I would try to keep it sort of agnostic, you know? Yeah. Like you can pull all these levers and each lever if you take it to the extreme has negative and positive consequences, perhaps like, for example, like corporate tax rate, right? If you take that to zero, maybe you get a lot more businesses starting businesses in, in the U S or wherever your country happens to be. But you know, the downsides are that you have, you know, increasing, uh, wage inequality and consolidation of wealth, the top 1%, blah, blah, blah. You have occupy wall street happening and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Interesting. I'm really into Sims these days. I don't play them a whole lot. I think about them a lot. Um, I watch a lot of um, like Twitch and YouTube videos of people playing Sims. Uh, I have actually played a couple recently, um, and I was working on one recently. You know, Prison Architect. Yeah, that is a cool one. I did uh, play that a little bit. 
really well done. Very deep, deep gameplay there. I think that that's another interesting topic, right? Politically, is like the prison system. Mm-hmm. And uh, I haven't played very much Prison Architect, but I wonder if there is, uh, and to what degree there are political assumptions or uh, fingerprints in that game simulation as well. Yeah, I would think, again, it's trying to be mostly just objective, like here's some raw numbers, but again, it would be probably fingerprints, right, of uh, even if unintentional of the developers working on the game and working some stuff in there. There are story elements um, in Prison Architect, so it's not all just simulation and watching your units move around and whatnot. Uh, there's also some scenes that have like these uh, Polaroid looking shots with like art drawings of, uh, you know, the, the actual inmates. So the inmates normally look like these uh, Playmobil figures, I guess. They have like circular heads and like these simple shaped bodies, right? Yeah. Uh, but you got these nice, uh, beautiful digital paintings in there of these Polaroid cards. And like the first story, I don't know if this is still true, but at, at one point in time, uh, one build of the game, the first story was one of the inmates is going to be put to death. And you have to walk through that, and you know a priest so shows up and everything, and there's the Polaroids and stuff, and you have to kind of build the room, like the execution room and stuff. I think that's, so. There's some political uh, stuff going on in there for sure. And it's like that's an interesting thing, right? Because they may not say, "Hey, the death penalty is bad," right, or or good or whatever, right? But what they are saying is like, "Hey, you have to build this room, put the guy in there, and then pull the lever." And like, here's his face and his backstory, and like, he's a person. So, you know, think about that, (laughs) right? Exactly, yeah. And I think that does a lot for that game because it is one of those games where your inmates all kind of look the same and they don't have a lot of individual personality, right? Right. But when you get into those stories, I think it does help, um, you know, root them. Yeah, I think that that's... Humanization is such an important thing in in all political aspects, right? Like, whenever you look at a group of people, whether it's prisoners or Republicans or Democrats or people on welfare or the one percenters or any any individual group you know it's sometimes hard to realize that they're all individuals with their own personal ups and downs and struggles and wants and needs and opinions and things like that right putting a face on anything is i mean literally anything is a way to help it get human attention you know what i mean yeah because people you're naturally drawn to faces you're naturally drawn to eyes you know like those are where your eyes go and so and it works too just when you're speaking of things or reading about stuff in a book you know this is why politicians like like last night when uh trump and clinton were going at it um they talk about individual people they always do that politicians right they'll be like i met you know sammy mcdonald from nebraska and he runs the sheep farm and he flies a kite and he had some problems he told me about that i fixed them it was cool right right like they they put they they say specific names they say specific places they try to humanize it because otherwise they're just talking about numbers i'm gonna reduce tax 15 percent. oh i care about all americans oh i care about this whole demographic whatever here's sammy sammy mcdonald don't forget about sammy right. <laughs> yeah i think that um going back to the prison architect example too like there's nothing more powerful than putting someone in the position of having to make a decision about someone else someone else's life. Yeah. You know, I think it's really easy to advocate for something like the death penalty when it's, you know, layers and layers and layers of removal, right? Like right. when you say, you know, I think that all, you know, anyone convicted of a violent crime should be put to death, you know? Uh it's easy to say that when you're talking in the abstract about bunches of people and no one in specific. 
Yeah. But when you have like, hey, here's like Joe Bob and uh, he had an altercation at a bar and he was a little too drunk and he got into a fist fight with a guy and he punched him hard and the guy fell and cracked his head open and died. Right. And it's like, you have to pull this lever or give him the lethal dose of injection that will kill this guy. Uh, like, is that something you want to do? Like, that's a much harder decision, I think, than some kind of blanket statement like, you know, all people of this kind of criminal intent should be executed or whatever. Yeah, it's easy to speak. It's easy to sit and watch. And making a decision can be very difficult. And that's one of the things that games as a medium brings to the table. And that's what I'd like to see more of, right? That's what Papers, Please was all about, really, is you've got these people's lives in your hands. And that's what made the game so compelling, interesting to play. Because you could have those same mechanics where you're taking cows to the slaughter, right? Or you're picking, um, like, it's like a factory and there's burgers on the on the assembly line, right? And you pick a good burger or a bad burger. You decide if it goes to the left or to the right, right? You could abstract it and you could have the gameplay a different scenario, but because it's people, because it's political, the decisions have a lot more weight on you. And, and you really feel that when you're playing the game. Yeah, that's true. You should play the game is what I'm saying. <laughs> you should play it. <laughs> Anywho, um, I think it's, you know, I don't know what the takeaways from the political argument are for me other than, you know, I think that there are benefits to owning your political views because it can help you connect with your audience as a game developer. Yeah. Um, but I think that you should always tread carefully because as a business person, you know, you should think about how your product is going to per- be perceived by your audience. Um, and, and that's important, right? Like right or wrong, you know, whether or not people should disparage products that don't agree with their political views, like that's a whole different argument. Yeah. As a person selling things, you have to be pragmatic and understand that it is a thing and people act a certain way and they will savage you in reviews if <laughs> you are in the minority on some opinion, probably. Or not. Or not. And if you uh, express a political view at all, you could very easily get savaged by someone who disagrees because that's the whole thing, right? Right. Is you will have people on one side or another of whatever your stance is. And then again, I, I think that, you know, probably won't continue this too much longer, hopefully, but uh, I think that... <laughs> you said hopefully. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> You're like, God, topic. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that it's like, it runs the risk of beating a dead horse sometimes. Yeah, it does. Plus, I, I know we have some listeners who are like, guys, I'm sticking with you. We're at about 40 minutes. Where is the game dev? <laughs> Where is the game dev? <laughs> Where is it? Um, but, like, yeah. think about this, though. Like, you're a person who is transgender, maybe, and you're making a game that's more of a story game. You wrote it in Twine, and it's, like, deeply story-driven and, and full of kind of, like, perhaps political or personal messages. And, you know, I think a lot of people in, in, in today's gaming industry would say, like, that's something to be lauded. Um, but you still have a very large, very vocal segment of the gaming population who rallies against that, you know? Yeah. But I don't think... So my previous statement was, like, you know, you should be careful because you don't want to get savaged in reviews or whatever. But at the same time, like, I think that you do need those voices of people that are going to stand up to the majority and say like, Hey, I think what you think is wrong and here's my creative work. And I know that you're going to probably take me to task, um, over it and, and make my life a living hell in other ways, you know, like 
Twitter spam and <laughs> swatting and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Which is pretty wrong, right? Like, Oh, man, it's awful. You can feel free to disagree with someone, but like, don't harass them. Don't send the SWAT team to their house. Like, that's just, this is beyond the pale. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, you, it's, it's a balance, right? Like, and, you know, some people are kind of in that position where they're like, my political opinion is so strong that, you know, kind of the public reaction be damned. I need to say this. Right. Okay. Now we're going back to traditional loss cast real quick. Beyond the pale. Beyond what, is, the- what is it? <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> uh, Where did it come from? That's a good question, actually. It's it's one of those sayings that oh, good. I know. That's not just me. I know and I say a lot and I, I have the general idea of what it means, but yeah. I couldn't tell you like the origins, perhaps. Oh, I'm so glad. All the time, like, because Andrea knows most of them, and she will chide me. She's like, are you kidding me? And she's so excited, she adds it to the list. She's like, hee hee, you're so dumb. And I'm like, I just haven't heard of this stuff. Outside the bounds of acceptable behavior, beyond the pale. So where'd that come from, though? Uh, let's see. Beyond the pale. Meanings and origins. Um... <laughs> Real time. Yes. <laughs> the, um, it's an adjective meaning whitish and light in color, pale. Yep. Uh, let's see. <laughs> the paling fence is a term. Pale came to mean the area enclosed by such a fence, and later just figuratively as the, in- <laughs> the area that's enclosed and safe. So to be beyond the pale was to be outside the area accepted as home. Okay. So you're kind of like outside your comfort zone or outside the bounds of safety or reasonability or I guess whatever you're happy to be talking about. Wikicast here. We are, we are explaining things. It's the power the of the world. internet. Real-time word definitions or whatever. Interesting. I had heard that one before, but it is one of those uh, expressions or whatever you want to call it where I, I didn't know the meaning of it. Yeah. And it makes, I think it's easier to figure out in context, of course. But anyway, yeah, that was very typical Lost Cast. I know this whole episode has been very un, uh, non-typical, atypical Lost Cast. Well, it's typical in the sense that we're ranting <laughs> about something. <laughs> about things we don't know much about. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is very typical Lost Cast. All right. I think we have uh, enough time. We can get into the next questions. Um, thanks for the question, uh, Andre. Hope I pronounced that right. Andre, maybe? Next question. Uh, A-N-D-R-I-I. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting name. Yeah. Dan Nagel, what is the status of your current projects? That's a fun, it's a fun question. It's more about us. We like questions about us. <laughs> uh, so he asked about specific games. So we're going to go through them real quick. Uh, we got AWL1. He asked, is it still getting updates? Um, now just bargain bin bundles. Could be. A Wizlizard Soul Thief. When is it finished? Uh, indie game sim, um, priority compared to Soul Thief. And Lava Blade 2. <laughs> which is funny because that doesn't exist uh but dan asks about it because he likes lava blade which is super cool it's a very wishful thinking kind of request but like, uh yeah i like it i i can i can talk about it a little bit let's i'll start with awl1 so still getting updates no <laughs> no now just bargain bin bundles yes yes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah pretty much i mean here's the thing right is that like it was successful-ish in the sense that it made you know, a non-trivial amount of money, but the long tail um, is not so thick. It's a very, very skinny tail. Raga's thin lizard tail. Raga's thin lizard tail, yeah. So it's hard to justify, you know, spending time time on it. I think that the only time we would spend more time on a Wizards Lizard 1 would be if there was some kind of critical game-breaking bug that affected a large percentage of the users. 
But yeah. um, in my mind, it's kind of like, here's the thing we did, it's done. And, you know, outside of like amazingly critical bug fixes, it's not really going to see much iteration. Not that long ago, I went in there and did something. Somebody had a request about a bug. They asked about it a few times. And that's what it takes for me to fix something in AWL 1. And I think it was an achievement or something. And I got in there and I fixed it. And then the build failed and I, I lost all will to continue, <laughs> sadly. Uh, funnily we, enough, the, the Soul Thief build still worked great. So I didn't. I had no idea what the problem was. And I was like, it's just like the reviews are mixed. The, the sales that it's going to make have come and gone. Working on it feels like going back in time and failing, like stepping backwards, you know? It's hard. I want to move forward. Right. Well, and it's hard too because like I think that every business person should evaluate the ROI of almost anything they do, right? Yeah. Like you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not at least thinking about and acknowledging like, hey, this will be a bunch of work and might not make me any money at all. Like this will, this, you know, this will probably lose me money in some way. Yeah. And if it's not going to be a business success, then you've really got to be passionate about it or something. Right. It's got to be something you feel like you have to make or whatnot. That being said, there is, you know, there is a business case to be made for keeping your small and uh, perhaps, you know, uh, engaged user base happy. Right. For sure. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, the game works decently enough for most people that it, it's hard to want to spend time on something that affects a minority of people. Yeah. Especially when you're short-staffed or whatever, right? Yeah. That's true. So TLDR there is no, not getting updates. Yes, now just bargain bin on bundles. And we have a sequel, you know, so it's not like we took Raga out back and shot him in the head. Wow. Uh, we'll get into that. <laughs> he had it coming. He'll be fine. He'll, ju- he'll jump into a uh, chicken. Maybe it's like old yeller. Like you're doing it for his own good, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so, Soul Thief. Uh, when is it finished? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Sometime in the future. So, I mean, Someday. let's just be, let's call a spade a spade, right? Like, it is not receiving a lot of updates at the moment. Right. And it is sort of on the back burner-ish at the moment because uh, we need money, right? And like we've talked about on the podcast before, like there's contract work happening because yep. you and I need to eat and pay our rent and whatever else. And like hungry, uh, that's just a sad reality, right? Like I would love to live in a world where either a I was independently wealthy enough that I could do whatever I wanted and work on whatever games I wanted all the time sounds great <laughs> or b the games that i was working on were bringing enough money on their own to facilitate you know more investment in that game yeah and so i think that we both want to finish soul thief right it's it's something that we started we put on early access i feel like we do have a commitment to people to finish it but again looking at it through the lens of roi um and you know not only ROI, but also like personal finances and stuff. It's like, you know, how are we going to make rent this month? How are we going to do whatever? Um, sometimes tough decisions have to be made, right? And I don't think that any one game is so important to us that we would give up our livelihoods or, you know, like basically trade our quality of life to make it happen, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Soul Thief is kind of in that spot right now where we want to finish it but it's hard to make the time to finish it because 
we have other things that we need to do to pay the bills. That's true. Sad but true. I mean, that project has had some chances too. It had the Kickstarter was a chance and it failed, and it had the early access launch, which um, some developers have seen uh, success there. You know, just where like, yeah, it managed to pay the bills, or you know, the the early access launch had a small splash and it was able to, uh, we were able to continue development because of that, right? And so Soul Thief's had at least two chances and uh, it has struck out twice. So it's, it's not even up to bat right now. <laughs> yeah. I think it's but like, it is due. You know, it, it's, it's hard because it's easy to look at these things like, you know, you committed to this project, like you should see it through. Like that is a very strong pull. And it's, I would say yeah, not I incorrect. Feel that heavily. But yeah. that being said, I think that again, any individual game, you know, could be thought about as an experiment, right? It's like, AWL2 was an unproven idea, right? And yep. so the fact that it hasn't had the reception that we would have liked, you know, kind of means that like maybe it was a failed experiment. And I'm not saying we're canceling it, we're going to take it off Steam or it'll never get finished. I don't know what the, the ultimate answer to that, that question happens to be. But I think it's a very real question that many developers probably face, which is, okay, I tried this thing and it's not working out the way I want, you know, what should I do? And I think yeah. it's perfectly acceptable to say, I tried this thing and it didn't work out the way I wanted to. So instead of like doubling down on a losing battle, right? Instead of throwing good money after bad, um, I'm going to try something else, right? Like, why not? Like, yeah, that shouldn't be viewed as a negative thing. Uh, I will mention, I don't know the Lost Cast episode number, but it's just trying to get by where we talked about trying three, right? Yeah, and uh, probably a similar thing with that project where they got to let's say they wanted to make it to C, but they only got it to B, right? They didn't get as far along as they wanted and realized that to to get to where they wanted to be was going to cost them like fifteen million dollars more or whatnot. Uh, It kind of feels like Soul Thief's in a similar situation where you know we made the first game, we finished it as we talked about earlier, and it's you know not the worst not the worst game on Steam. I'll say that that's truth. Truth. Um, but we wanted to make it bigger and HD and more animation and, and better graphics and just like you can play as the monsters and all this stuff. Uh, it does kind of feel like we try to bite off more than we can chew, especially when the project has had um, two whiffs, as we mentioned. <laughs> two whiffs, yeah. It's like one, one more whiff and it's, it's struck out, man. Like you're going back to the yeah. dugout. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing too. Like, we ha- like we've shown it at multiple conferences. We showed it at PAX. We showed it at... Uh, what was the other one the indie thingy and, and even with that exposure pretty decent exposure you know it still hasn't had any healthy pickup you know it's the, the amount of money it's made is is uh really bad when you look at how much time it's had right. um, sunk into it so i really do feel that pull the the desire to finish is because it's out there for sale we've accepted people's money and we said we would finish it i feel that pull to finish it really heavily um, so I, I have been working on it, like earnestly. Um, I have put out maybe I don't know three or four updates in the last couple months. I guess uh, certainly not the weekly we used to have. It's probably more like monthly at this point. Uh, but then, like just over this weekend, I was working on it. Um, I finished up some stuff with Indie Game Sim. So I added this thing I call uh, debug mode. You can access from the title scene, and there's a little box where you can just spawn stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of cool because you know um, sometimes people have been like. Hey, I think I found a bug with the inkwell, but I can't really duplicate it, and it's taking forever because I can't find any inkwells in the, in the uh, library, right? Um, well, this will help people find those bugs, and it'll help me too, you know, because I can 
be like, hey, I want to have a quick fight with, you know, these two monsters. So I just summon them using that real quick. Anyway, uh, was, I've been pushing forward on it a little bit. But I will say it's really hard to work on because there is that voice in the back of my head that's like, you're a bad business person. <laughs> right. The potential audience for this game has already told you twice that they don't really care. <laughs> you know, and like, I don't want it to minimize, um, you know, some people who are very vocal and very supportive. They really like the idea and stuff like that. Uh, but I think it's just not numerous enough, right? Like enough people have seen it to where if it was a really good project, I think it would have had more lift by now. You know, I think a lot of people look at it and they're like, okay, it's some cool ideas and execution. Like, I don't know. And then they, they lose interest. They really do. Cause it's not sticky enough. It's not that next exciting, awesome thing, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't have the depth and, you know, at some point it's hard for us to see how to get that depth that it would require while being a manageable and small amount of work. Right. Yeah. Which I guess kind of goes without saying, right? Like you can't have something great without putting in the time, but because like you said, it's whiffed twice, you know, basically every time we go to bat, it costs us money. It does. It costs us money in preparation. It costs us money in like spending time on marketing or, or this, that, and the other thing. And, and to time we spend to pay ourselves to actually iterate on the game, uh, it costs us money. So every time we go to bat, there's a, a cost to it. And you know, when you struck out twice and you're like, okay, it's going to cost like X to go to bat again, it becomes harder and harder to want to step up to the plate. And I'm starting to have a better understanding of that cost, um, like as compared to my own output. So let's get the indie game sim next. Uh, so this is a game I started like four-ish months ago. And um, from the very beginning, I always wanted us to have two games launched this year. And Soul Thief was... Uh, you know, good progress is actually for sale and uh, in early access and stuff like that. Um, so I think it's really healthy, especially for me and just the way that I work to have a side project. And I wanted to make something that was kind of like, I wanted it to have that feeling that I get when I'm putting puzzle pieces together and I'm, and I'm developing games, how good it feels to be like, I added a component and it blows stuff up. It's called the explosion component. It's so cool. Or like, look, I added this tile and just by moving it up one tile, this whole level is so much harder and all that cool stuff, you know? Um, so that's indie game sim basically is you make your own little levels and you put them in this digital market. Um, and I think it's basically done. It's been, it's felt like it's been done for like a month or so, but I've been putting like finishing touches on it and doing play tests and stuff like doing my due diligence. Um, so the priority for that project at first, I was treating it like, so I guess it was like mid year at some point I was treating it like a side project. I would work on it on the weekends, maybe in the evenings and stuff. And I was still pushing hard on soul thief back when it had weekly updates and whatnot. Um, then after the really poor reception, um, and then I think that was also um, when you accepted the contract, I was like, I'm going to allow myself to go deeper into indie game sim. So it became more of a priority than Soul Thief for uh, basically like, I would say two or three months of development. And then I kind of switched gears again where I would like, I would have maybe a couple of weeks or a month where I was working on Soul Thief full time and then indie game sim would take a back seat, right? Because I wanted to do play tests and stuff like that. So uh, currently the priority of that project is very low because it's got the thunderclap clap. Yeah. The thing I talked about not that long ago. Yes. Um, I meant to mention that earlier, actually. That thing's live. I really appreciate the support. I think I mentioned last week I wanted to get 50 people on it the first week. It's got like 30 something. So uh, I really need your help there. I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in a bit. But Indie Game Sim is largely done. It's got a, a bunch of content. It's got definitely a couple of hours, at least a few hours of gameplay. Uh, and I, you know, you can play it forever and just making your own games. I even added recently the ability to share your games via URL. Nice, which we talked so, about right on the podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like we, yeah. yeah. 
So that project is largely done. It's going to need more work. Um, it needs achievements. Those aren't done at all. It needs Steam integration if it manages to get on Steam, which again, uh, helps support the Thunderclap or later just vote on the green light. Um, but other than that, like I'm calling it done. I would love to add more content, especially if, like let's say I launch on Steam, people are like, ah, these more content. I'll, I'll totally do that if if the response is there though. But that's the thing, right? Like I've spent enough time on it now where that's it. It, it it's It's been as expensive as it's going to be for me. And if it gets more work on it, it needs to come from people putting their wallets and being like, yeah, that needs more time. You know what I mean? Right. Because otherwise, uh, it's done. It's done. Stick a fork it's in done. it. It's done. Exactly. And that's what I really wanted. And I feel good about that. I wanted to launch another game this year. I wanted to have one more thing I could put in someone's hand and be like, that's worth a couple bucks, right? Like, it's not the greatest game ever, but I had an idea and I made it relatively quickly and it's ship it, right? Like, that's what I wanted. I wanted something small. Bite size, concise, get it out there. Maybe it'll make a few dollars. Great, and I'll, I'll learn more. Right, like that's how you really learn is by having an idea and shipping it. And that's that's what I wanted. I think that that to me, kind of going forward, is probably the route that we should take in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I think that early access is an interesting experiment, but it sort of puts you on the hook, like. Uh, kind of conceptually for support yeah right because you're saying hey we're developing this game be a part of it but if that experiment fails you know people are like well what when is it going to be released out of early access or whatever right right so maybe the better approach for you know this era of games you know is to say something like Here's a game I made. It's it's like complete experience. It's kind of like Scrum, right? It's kind of like Agile, right? Hmm. Instead of, uh, I think we talked about this graphic. That, we did. That, yeah, I found a weird image. I put a link in last week's show notes. Right. But, you know, to reiterate, the basic idea was like you start with a unicycle, then you get bicycle, then you get motorcycle, then you get car versus you start with an axle and a frame and a chassis and then an engine, right? Um, yeah. So to me, early access is more like, you know, hey, it doesn't have to be this way necessarily, but I think it kind of works out more like here's a knowingly incomplete game, right? And we're going to sell it to you on the promise that it's going to get better, right? Like, hey, check out these axles and chassis that I put together. And like, trust me, like you're going to want to see this car when it's done because it's going to be amazing, right? right? And people are like, oh yeah, like I can totally see the forest of the trees and this is going to be the most amazing game ever. Yeah. Uh, and so they back it or whatever, right? Like same thing with Kickstarter. Um. But, like, it's hard to get there sometimes, right? Depending on your vision or the things going on in your life or the market response or whatever, right? To get to that, to that end result. Whereas if you put something up and you say, like, here is a complete experience. It's small, but it's done, right? At least to, to some definition of done. And then you can vet its roi or popularity or, or response or whatever right then you can make yeah. the decision like hey i want to invest more resources in this because you know reasons uh kind of like spelunky right i mean maybe indie game sim someday could go the spelunky route where here's a pixelated version of this idea and it's um executed decently like good enough to play and to get it and that could lead to something else you know because certainly I think it's an idea that could be expanded upon. And I've talked before about Indie Game Sim and some of the other ideas I had for it. I'd love to explore those, you know. So if it's a project that's cool enough and does well enough, like I, I would totally revisit that, whether it's like an HD thing or just like the same idea, but like a sequel style where it's like just expand upon it, you know, 
higher definition, better game loop, way more content, that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not, that was not from the very beginning. That was not the project that I wanted to make. I didn't want to make this giant thing, you know? Right. Um, but if it proves itself, you know, like uh, I would work on that for years if, if the money was there. And because uh, I think that it's a project that like a concept that's cool enough and could be built out um, in such a way where it would make this really awesome game if it was like because if that game had two years of development attention it would be so badass <laughs> you know because after like three or four months it's it's quite playable and, and people who play it find it pretty intuitive and you can make cool little things and it still surprises me even though i've been working on it for so long and i play it a lot right um something happened recently where like a block gave out underneath a, some spikes and the spikes fell onto a bounce uh, i called a bouncer and the spikes bounced up and they landed on a platform that was moving and then the spikes or the platform moved the spikes and i landed on the platform and died and i got a belly laugh you know those, those <laughs> like ah, ha, ha, like the the burst right yeah yeah but for my own game and I, it made me so happy you know because like I, I will have a good laugh from like a tv show or something but like the fact that i made something that surprised and delighted me i think shows a lot of potential anyway i'm just saying i spent some months on it i would spend a lot more time on it if the project works but that's the whole thing is like it needs to go out there and and see if people like it or not. Like it enough or not. And it's hard, right? Because there are so many complete experiences and so many games that are cheap and whatever else that it's... I think it's sometimes hard to get that audience, right? Like, indie game yeah. sim could be a game that, you know, people see as like, oh, yeah, this has a lot of potential and, like, I would like to back it, essentially, yeah. or, or buy it in further development. Yeah. But there's also the risk that, like, people will say, like, yeah, it looks like it has potential, but I want to play something right now, so I'm going to buy something else. It, yeah. it never gets that love and attention that it that it could get because there are so many other choices, right? Like, it's hard. It looks like a garbage pixelated version of Mario Maker. <laughs> Mario Maker clone uh, developer should uninstall himself. Uninstall <laughs> himself. Yeah, worst game I've ever seen. Thumbs down. Un star. Uninstalled JavaScript, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Got a refund. <laughs> Wrote a hate mail. Yeah. Yeah, worst game I've ever played. <clears throat> Anyways. Uh, so that's Indie Game Sim. I'm basically calling it done, but it does need more work, um, especially the achievements and stuff. I want to keep polishing it and stuff like that too, but it's it's done. I've been saying it's done. It's done. So when when is it in a place that we can buy it? On October 4th, it'll launch on Steam Greenlight and that Thunderclap supports it. So like basically if you, if you sign up, like you can authenticate Thunderclap through Twitter and Facebook. And if you do that, It'll just post the Steam Greenlight campaign for you on Twitter or Facebook. And I really appreciate that stuff. On October 4th, Steam Greenlight will go live. I was thinking about selling it on Humble that same day. I don't really know if I should do that or not. I don't know. What do you think? I would. I mean, honestly, I think that what I would do is, I mean, and you don't have to take my advice by any stretch of the imagination, but <laughs> I think that if I were in that position and I was going to make a small game and I was going to try and sell it, I don't think I would even go the green light route. I think I would just put it up on Humble or Itch and say it's three bucks, you know, spread it around as best I can, and uh, and call it a day. And then hmm. if there's enough interest there and people are like, yeah, this this should totally be on Steam, then you know at that point maybe then run a green light campaign for it or whatever. Gotcha. Well, I didn't go that route. That's fine. <laughs> uh, good to know though. But yeah, that's uh, that's where it's at. So I might put it for sale on Humble that same day. I haven't decided yet. But um, basically, the Steam Greenlight campaign will determine the future of that game. If it gets accepted on Steam, uh, then I'll integrate Steam achievements and badges and trading cards, and that'll take about a month or whatever, and then I'll launch it on Steam, and it's done. I guess I see Steam as sort of like, not exactly swinging for the fences, but 
it's like one step higher than it's proven so far, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I'm okay with that. I uh, I like swinging for the fences. Well, there you go. I, I strike out <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> I love all these baseball <laughs> metaphors today. I know. It's so funny because neither one of us really cares about no, our legs. I hate baseball. Much, <laughs> it's just sports metaphors are so easily understood. It's true, yeah. Like I, I think. Well, you know, it's... Baseball you might have people from football. other countries that are like, what is base- what are you talking about swinging? What are you talking about strikeout? We need, some, we need some cricket metaphors, maybe. We need video game metaphors. Yeah. I can't think of any. <laughs> <laughs> dot, 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 trails off into oblivion. All right, last but not least, um, this podcast going a little long. Hope, hope there's no complaints. Uh, I'm sure some of you have skipped past all the political stuff, well, so maybe it's a really short podcast <laughs> this week. <laughs> Plus, like, you know, if you don't want to hear us talk anymore, just press the stop button. Wow, don't invite that. <laughs> I mean, don't. Now they won't hear me say, keep playing. Go right. listen to old episodes, too. Okay, so Lava Blade 2, last but not least. You want to make a tactics game. I do. I said before. really, really badly want to make a tactics game. Basically, I want an IGS, right? I want an indie game sim of my very own <laughs> to Aww. love and to have and to nurture. Indie indie Jeff Sim. <laughs> indie Jeff Sim, yeah. Um. <laughs> Well, I want, I want like a project because I'm, I'm doing contract work right now and that takes up the majority of my time. So I, I really don't have the bandwidth to work on anything super ambitious. Yeah. Um, but I want to work on something and I want it to be something that I am personally really invested in and something that I keep simple and scalable and I can easily make content for uh, yeah. myself. And so... I think we talked about Lava Blade and how it hit some of those sweet spots for me back when we were first making it, right? Like yep. the things I love about Lava Blade were one, that it was a tactical combat game, which is like one of my favorite genres. We talk about Shining Force. I played Final Fantasy Tactics. I love Invisible Ink. Like I love Descent, which is a board game. Um, it's like a hack and slash D&D game. But like if you've got a tile map and you've got units that move and attack on that tile grid, like sold. Like I, I'm all over it. <laughs> Duelist, uh, which is a free to play game that came out on yeah. Steam recently and, and was off Steam playable before that. It's sort of like Magic the Gathering meets tactics and it's amazing. It's a super fun game. So like that is a thing that is very near and dear to my heart, Lava Blade. Um I also think that Lava Blade, while not the greatest game ever, it showed a lot of interesting stuff that I would like to explore more. Um, one thing I thought that was sort of interesting is we went this route where it was all about the equipment and not about, uh, like character stats necessarily. And I don't know if that is like the right way to go, but I think it was at the very least like sort of a little spin on the classic formula. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something else I would like to explore. Um, because it, it, to me kind of like is a little bit more of a understandable scenario right? Like you're not digging into all these complicated stats. It's more like, you know, I'm wielding the sword of gray skull and therefore I'm a badass, (laughs) right? As opposed to like, I'm level 50 and I'm wielding an iron sword and I'm doing crazy tons of damage because my strength stat is super high. Right. I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea, but you know. That's kind of what WoW turns into, right? It starts off as a game where you're gaining levels and it ends up a game where you're gaining better gear. Exactly, yeah. Like when you're leveling up, your gear doesn't matter hardly at all, right? Uh, but once you hit 
level cap, then it's all about which weapons do you have because the, the weapons... game switches dynamics completely. And at that point, there's a lot you could borrow where you look at it as just, you know, all these units are kind of the same. Maybe they have traits and stuff, of course, right? But uh, it's all about the gear. Right. And that becomes, uh, it makes it really easy to add new content, right? Yeah. Here's a sword. Here's a dagger. Here's a fire axe. The other thing I loved about Lava Blade was that the avatars, you know, were basically uh constructed dolls. piecemeal they were dolls right yeah. and so it was very easy you know we had like here's a bunch of goblin bodies here's a whole bunch of weapons right it was super easy for you to crank out a bunch of weapons you know like oh i'm gonna make a spear now i'm gonna put a feather on the spear now the spear is gold now the spear is iron spear the spear has like sort of spikes on the side but it's all like this base spear graphic mm-hmm. and obviously all art has cost but when you're talking about creating a whole bunch of content like that's a, a fairly good pipeline i think for content and then, yeah, you've talked before about how much you love that. And I really liked it because, you know, you could create something, send it to me, something I haven't never seen before. You know, like here's a goblin with this badass shield and like this cool sword and a helmet that you haven't seen before, right? Whereas usually like, you know, me being the artist on those projects, like that stuff had to be, you know, had to go through me, right? Right. So of course I would always see stuff, but that was really cool because you were empowered just to like build your own stuff just with these like, you know, puzzle pieces that were on the table. Exactly, yeah. And, um, and, and that is like, a situation that I want to be in with my own project, right? Where, uh, not that I don't want to be dependent on you or whatever, but like, I want to feel empowered. Like I've got all the pieces here. I'm going to just go create. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think it's just really about the pipeline, right? It's, it's the pipeline is so good that I can just create content without having to source art from you, source it from somewhere else or whatever, like maybe initially, you know, or, or maybe it, like I draw all my own graphics and then I'd say, Hey Matt, like, you know, can I compensate you somehow for, <laughs> you know, drawing, you know, a hundred swords or whatever? Sure. Or something, you know, like, you know, maybe we could figure something for out. For the record, that sounds like so much fun to me. Yeah. I would totally art your game. You totally art you my wanted. <laughs> Matt. That sounds great. I have an important question. <laughs> would you, will you, will you art my game? <laughs> we, that sounds great. Yeah. I would totally do that. So I guess long story short is that I really want to work on something like Lava Blade. Um, it won't be Lava Blade Two. I can say that yeah, almost I'm, assuredly. We're, we're sorry, Dan. It, it won't. It won't be Lava Blade Two. I mean, Lava Blade. What did it have? Um, I mean, the gameplay is pretty cool. But like, I'm, I'm talking about the things that you wouldn't get in a, a different tactics game that we made, right? So that would be pretty much just the characters, I guess. Because the setting is really just generic, um, medieval fantasy. Yeah. And, you know, the way that we make games, you probably will see some of those characters pop up, you know, because you see Zam in a wizard's lizard. Um, can't think of any other examples right now, but we like to, you know, reference Cross stuff. Reference, I, I tried, yeah, yeah like, uh, you know, put a lunch bug in Soul Thief or something like that. So you might see, you know, if you really liked the gin, uh, which is an homage to our game engine, if you liked the gin in Lava Blade or you liked Lars or Luna or something, um, you might very well see them. Well, other games actually luna, i should have them in any game sim luna from luna was in uh, a wizard lizard yeah, right totally and uh astute viewers who have played a wizard's lizard soul thief and lava blade might notice that one of the trinkets that you created this is like white elephant thing was very oh, yeah. similar to these healing totem type things that existed in lava blade yeah um that all comes from magic the gathering there's the uh, ivory totem yeah. no ivory tower Every tower, and then what was uh, the elephant? There was some elephant charm as well. I think they're both in revised. 
So sure. really aging myself here, like 20 years ago, Magic the Gathering. Anyway, I always like for healing entities to be like ivory or elephants for that reason, because I think that it looks clean and healthy and healing. And then also it's a reference. So. Yeah, like elephants kind of like associated with stamina and fortitude and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Eating peanuts. Eating <laughs> peanuts. Stomping on mice. Yeah. Being afraid of mice, yeah. maybe. Flying with giant ears. Yeah. Okay. Like now that. you're just getting crazy. <laughs> So, um, I allowed myself, uh, it was over the weekend to work on a concept for also a tactics game. Oh, and I've talked before about my tenants and, uh, it has those same tenants. I don't know where my list is. I don't care. One of them though was, um, click only. And another one was like, like you were saying the simple, um, content, right? Like, I want to be able to just crank out content so fast. Like, I can sit down for half an hour and be like, brand new unit, bam. Um, it is a turn-based tactics game. Um, I have written a story with multiple beats in the story, multiple choices, multiple branching choices uh, in a very simple fashion. And I want it to be ridiculously simple as well. But yeah, I, I designed up a little concept, and uh, I want to work on it, but I don't think I'll be able to for a long time. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, it's on graph paper and it's like, it doesn't really exist and who knows what in the hell it'll actually end up being when I, if I ever get, I get to actually work on it, but it, it exists in a state and I like it a lot. Here's something else that I thought about a tactics game that I really, really enjoyed was, uh, making the content and the story modular. Mm. And something that I really like about that is, um, like this game that I played recently with my brother, Sean called card hunter. And Card Hunter is sort of like, it's a tactics game, basically, but the whole motif is that you're playing Dungeons and Dragons. And so, like, the figurines look like kind of flat cardboard things, and it, but it's all 3D. Yeah. And it's a pretty cool motif. I, I really enjoy it. But, like, the basic idea is that there's sort of an overarching storyline, but the storyline is more about, the storyline is more like, hey, you're playing D&D with your friends. But the actual yeah. encounters and the actual dungeons are sort of like these piecemeal modules. Like, oh, like, let's play the, like, um, goblins in the forest module, right? And, and the goblins in the forest module is, like, three battles long. And you fight some crappy goblins, and then the next battle you fight some stronger goblins, and then, like, the last battle you fight the goblin king. And then you get some rewards for doing that module, right? Yeah. And that module is maybe, like, attuned for... Uh, like level five to eight or who knows, right? Oh, you're going to do uh, leveling? Uh, I'm not saying I'm going to do leveling. I'm just saying like... You could be a thing. That's kind of how, how Card Hunter works. But I really like gotcha. the idea of like discrete chunks of gameplay content that, you know, uh, can be like a little bit easier for me to digest, right? Like I think that one thing that I personally have a lot of problems with storyline-wise and thematic-wise is like trying to come at a game from this like very holistic super zoomed out view of like you're you start here and then you end here and there's a gigantic boss at the very end who's like super powerful and like you could feel his influence throughout the entire game like you're building mm -hmm. up to this crazy apex which i think you know is good right like that has a big draw like sephiroth and final fantasy 7 example right like it's a yeah. it's a very long story it has a lot of stuff going on and you're like these characters keep recurring and they build and build and build until till the end of the game and then it's like really satisfying um i don't know that i'm like capable of that or ready for that in, in terms of being a storyteller 
Hmm. And so I think that for me, I think it would be beneficial to start with like, okay, I'm going to make a more of a game that's like you're an adventurer and maybe you have a hub that's like the tavern or something and you can strike out in different directions, right? Oh, you know, one one module takes you to like the frozen tundra where you have ice ogres and you know, you go into a cave and there's like three battles and you fight the ogre king and then you get something and then you're done and you come back. And you could run that module again if you really wanted to or you could go on to a different module maybe you know, there's some kind of unlocking mechanism or it's, you know, could be level based, like the frost ogres are level one. And then, you know, when you reach level five, you can go do the goblin area or whatever. Um, I like that because it feels like it would be easy to add content to because you don't necessarily need to adhere to uh, any specific storyline, right? Um, You could make these little bite-sized storylines that you want to explore. Like, you know, I really want to make a storyline where, you know, uh, pillaging orcs have taken over a farmstead and the farm, you know, owner is trapped in the basement and you have to rescue him. Hmm. And then later on, I want to make a scenario where you're defending a palace from waves and waves and waves of demonic hordes <laughs> or Ooh, something, you know? One of, my, one of my favorite magic cards. <laughs> that's right. Also from Revised. You and, you're such a dork. <laughs> yes, that's what I was waiting for. <laughs> Uh, Anyways, I'm sure I could talk about this all day, but uh, I think that the upshot is is that you and I are both interested in tactics games. I think that there's... I I was working on a prototype, which uh, is probably up on our YouTube channel, a tactical game that was post-Lava Blade, right? Show notes coming up. Show notes. Uh, So basically, you know, you have an idea for a tactics game. I have ideas for tactics games. We've made one tactics game. I prototyped another tactics game. And uh, I'm personally thinking that my next, you know, sizable effort into game dev will be a tactics game. Oh, man. Oh, you know what I want to do? Here's what I want to do. What? Uh, I want to do one of the situations where, like, okay, you got, you got one year, I got one year. Go. Who makes a better tactics game in a year? Oh, man. I, there was this, oh! like, dev versus dev thing that uh, we talked about a long time ago. I don't really know how it ended, but it was a similar Wasn't thing. Wasn't it brother versus brother? Yeah, something like that. They're both making games and like yeah. it was sort of a contest. I think it'd be fun. The hard part is, is that like, you know, I feel like that could be cool, but at the same time, like you kind of think like, well, that's great and all, but if you guys were collaborating on this tactics game, like, <laughs> oh my God, it would be way better. Well, maybe, maybe. Or, or, maybe. or maybe it would be a hot mess. The the too many cooks thing we we're talking about earlier, or the middle of the road, right? Is like some of our work has been a little bland because I'll be like, you know, Jeff, I want ten, and you're like, I want one, and so we meet in the middle at five, and it's like, oh, I'm like, five. Matt, I really want this game to be about <laughs> pro Trump, and you're like, no. Oh, you brought it back to the politics. Yes, <laughs> that was in the beginning. Look at you. Oh, you brought it back. I'm I love it. Such a, if only I was as good at game development as I am at podcasting. <laughs> the story of our lives well thanks for listening as always uh make sure to join us on the forum at forum.lostigatgames.com chat with us in discord i'm sure matt will have a link in the show notes you know it (laughs) You know it. It's, he's always on top of those show notes. Yeah, so on top. Uh, ship it. <laughs>
All right. Let's do the political one first. Political one first. All Let's right. See. And then right off the bat, we have new patron. Oh, yeah. Are you? Let's do that first. Uh, warm waffles. <laughs> so I'll put that. Warm waffles. Warm waffles. Okay. Something is wrong with you, I think. 